British monarchy is the traditional protector of the faith for the Church of England, Prince Charles prefers to see himself as the protector of faiths, plural. Because you see, to quote him, no one has a monopoly on truth. Now that's pretty much the spirit of this age. It's often referred to as postmodernism, and it's given rise to this whole idea of political correctness, where you're not really allowed to draw attention to any sort of difference in people, lest you run the risk of implying that those people, this lifestyle, may somehow be better than others. So last week, at a university in America, the Christian fellowship on the university was suspended from the student union because the Christian fellowship's constitution uses the words male and female. And the student union felt that that could be seen as excluding transsexuals, bisexuals. But hey, truth is relative. What may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. All lifestyles are equally valid. So the Christian fellowship was kicked out of the union. Now at one level, that sounds very nice. Sounds very accepting. It's very tolerant. Trouble is, God doesn't actually agree with it. And he says so in lots of different places in the Bible, like the New Testament book of 1 John that we're going to be spending our time in over the next few weeks. In fact, as I've been spending time in 1 John, uh, again, working on this series, I'm starting to wonder whether 1 John may in fact be the most politically incorrect book of the Bible. Because, you see, 1 John was written at a time in history when there is a dangerous, false version of Christianity that was floating around the early church. Many, many Christians were being lured away by a quite seductive false teaching. And over the next few weeks, we'll discover what some of those specific false teachings were. But, you see, what effectively happens in 1 John is that the Apostle John defends what true Christianity is all about. And it turns out that what he says has very, very big repercussions for our modern world and postmodernism and political correctness. Because time and time again, John effectively says, look, I want you to know the truth is not relative. Time and time again, John says, look, I want you to know that all lifestyles are not equally valid. All beliefs are not true. There is a right and there is a wrong. And so you'll notice in the outline that's in the bulletin this morning, you'll notice that there's two main sections to it, truth, truth affirmed and truth applied. Now that's pretty much going to be the exact same outline every week in this series. Point one is always going to be the truth affirmed. Point two is always going to be the truth applied. Now the particular truth that's being dealt with will vary from week to week, but the basic flow of ideas will be much the same. And I hope that won't be too boring. I actually want it to be instructive because it's pretty much how John's mind is working throughout this letter. As all the way through, he's drumming away on what true Christianity is all about. All the time he's drumming away on what the real truth about God is. And so this morning in these opening four verses, the particular truth that he wants to hammer away at is the truth that the word of life has appeared. Sounds a bit weird, really, doesn't it? The word of life has... It actually turns out to be pretty important. Let's discover how by firstly thinking about that phrase, the word of life. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, you really can't miss the stress that John makes there on being an eyewitness to this word of life, can you? Uh, He talks about having heard, seen, looked at, touched. We'll get to that in a minute. What I want you to firstly notice, though, is the opening phrase where he describes the word of life as that which was from the beginning. Now, that's a very similar way that John starts his gospel. John starts his gospel, which is all about Jesus, with the words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, you see the similarities there, both in his gospel and here in this letter. John starts by talking about the Word who existed from the beginning. And therefore, because of what he goes on to say in his gospel, it's pretty obvious that the word of life that John has in mind here in 1 John, the word of life is God, God himself. So why not say that? Wouldn't it be easier just to have said God instead of the word of life? It's because he wants to stress the importance of getting it right about God. He actually wants to stress the importance of getting it right about Jesus and Christianity and God. Because remember, he's writing at a time when a false gospel is floating around and he wants them to realise that that's no small thing. Issues about God and Jesus and Christianity, they are not just abstract uh, academic ideas that don't matter too much. Because if you get it wrong about God, it cuts you off from the word of life. You get it wrong about God and it cuts you off from the source of life. You get it wrong about God and worst of all, it cuts you off from eternal life. And that is the last thing that John wants for his readers. He wants his readers to actually be, to know for sure that they do have eternal life. Because the good news is you can know that for sure. It's because the word of life has appeared. Verse 2. The life appeared. And we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now I just want you to dwell on the radicalness of what he is saying in that verse. God has appeared. The creator and sustainer of life has somehow become part of this life. He's saying that God walked around in Palestine. And if you'd have been born at the right time of history, you would have seen him. He is saying that God was pushed and jostled in the marketplace. He's saying that God had to go to sleep at night to have enough energy to keep going the next day. He's saying that God grew up in a family with brothers and sisters. Now that sounds a ridiculous thing to say. You even get the feeling that John knows it sounds ridiculous, which is why he says it twice in the one verse. Did you notice that verse 2? The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and, yes, you heard me the first the right time, he has appeared to us. And it's here that you can appreciate why there's this emphasis on all these verses about John being an eyewitness. Verse 1, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, we have touched. Verse 2, we have seen. Verse 3, we have seen, we have heard. There's this continual stress on the fact that, hey, I'm writing to you as an eyewitness. I know it sounds crazy, 
But I was there. I spent time with him. Now, many people, of course, reckon that John's a nutcase saying this about God. God appearing as a man. Come on. People thought that in John's day. That's partly why he's writing the letter in the first place. People still think it nowadays. Mind you, if you're here this morning and you think that he's a nutcase in saying it, can I gently ask you that what sort of good reason you've got for not believing him? I mean, what makes us think that we know better? When here we are on the other side of the world to where it happened, thousands of years after it happened, what makes us think that we know any better than an eyewitness who, who heard and saw and touched? And yet, later on this year in May, when the Da Vinci Code comes out at the movies, there'll be another round of people saying that Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus was just a regular guy like us. He got married, he had kids and everything. There is, of course, not a shred of historical evidence for those ideas, but people will believe them because they want to believe them. Because, hey, if God's become a man, that strips away any option of us being God. If God's become a man, we sort of can't do our own thing anymore because we've got to do what this one man wants us to do. If God's become a man, we can't pretend that everything's okay anymore because this one man says it's not okay, we are sick with sin and we need to come to him for healing. If God's become a man, it means that we can't depend on our wisdom to find truth and life anymore because this one man says that he is the truth and the life. And you see, if God's become a man, that means that that one man becomes the measure of everything. But that can't be right. That is way too fundamentalist. That is way too politically incorrect. I mean, who does the guy think he is, God or something? And John is saying, exactly. He is. I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I ate meals with him. I saw how he behaved when people had a go at him. I heard what he said when people came around and asked him questions. I got to see what his priorities were. I got to see what his goals were. I got to see how he died. I was there when he came back to life. And I am telling you, the word of life appeared. And the ramifications are enormous. You can see just two of them in what John goes on to say in verses 3 and 4. Because having affirmed the truth that the word of life appeared, he now goes on to apply it by giving two reasons why he's so keen for his readers to hear about it. Reason number one has to do with fellowship. Verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see why he's sharing his eyewitness experience? It's so that they, his readers can have fellowship with him and his fellowship is with God. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, notice that in order to have fellowship with his readers, John is telling them about Jesus. In other words, in John's opinion, there is no real deep fellowship unless they share the same opinion and view of Jesus. 
which is almost the exact opposite to the way our modern world works. In our postmodern, politically correct world, the push is on that in order to have unity, you actually avoid discussion about any sort of doctrine. Hey, we want a big, nice, ecumenical family. And we want Catholics and we want Protestants and hey, we want people from it, Jews and every sort of faith. We don't want to start any arguments, so let's not talk about anything doctrinal or substantial. John, however, when he wants to preserve fellowship and unity, that's exactly when he does start to talk about things substantial and doctrinal. That's exactly when he wants to get theologically about Jesus. Because the apostle doesn't want an, an illusion of unity. He wants solid and real fellowship upon the firm foundation of the truth about the real Jesus. Which is great when Bible studies have robust discussion about the real Jesus because that is what builds real fellowship. The second thing to note though is it's not only so that he can have fellowship with his readers, it's also that his readers can have fellowship with God because that's a very clear implication here, isn't it? That John's readers will get to join in with his fellowship with God by hearing and believing what he's telling them about Jesus. That makes sense. If God has appeared as a man, the only way to get to know God is to get to know the man. Before I went to Bible college, I taught at a uh, private high school in Sydney. And one day as I was sitting in the staff room, I overheard a conversation between the school chaplain and one of the other teachers. The, the chaplain had just had a comparative religion lesson with uh, Year 7, where he'd gone through, you know, Buddhism and uh, Christianity and Islam and, and really all the world's religions and paraded them all before the students. And the chaplain said to the other teacher, look, you'll never guess what one of the students asked. One of the students actually asked me, of all the religions, which was the right one? And the chaplain and the other teacher burst into laughter. As if, what a stupid question. As if any one of them is any more right than the other. The Apostle John would say that that year seven student asked the perfect question. And the answer to the question is, Christianity is the right one. Jesus of Nazareth is the only way you get to know God because he is God appeared for us. And so... The Aboriginal dream time, it's wrong. Islam, it's wrong. Buddhism, it's wrong. Now, does that mean we don't treat the followers of other religions with dignity and respect and love? Of course we do. But let's not pretend that other religions are better than they are. Let's grasp the implications of God becoming a man. Let's grasp the genuine importance of people hearing the news about Jesus. John certainly senses that importance. You can see it in the second reason he gives for sharing his eyewitness testimony. Verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. I don't know whether you remember late last year in the news, there was a story about a toddler that went missing on the south coast when he wandered away from the tent that he and his family were camping in on a holiday. 
Fears were pretty high for the little guy because they were camping in a national park just next to the shores of a lake. And so a massive search was mounted. But after 24 hours without success, uh, little Cooper Jones's parents were verging on hysterical. And then the news came through. They'd found him. He was well and he was safe, about a kilometre and a half from where they'd last seen him. In the paper, Cooper's dad said that when he heard the news, his heart stopped. I was absolutely ecstatic. I collapsed to the ground, overcome with joy. You would, wouldn't you? When someone you care about is found to be safe, when someone you care about is in very real danger, of course you're filled with joy. That's the Apostle John. He cares for his readers and the danger they are in is very real because you see there is a truth about God. You can get it wrong about God and if you get it wrong about God, you are in a very dark place. And the danger for you and I is that our postmodern, politically correct world is continually dulling our senses to this. As if it doesn't really matter that there aren't enough scripture teachers. As if it's no big deal that your friends don't know Jesus. It matters and it's a big deal. Last month I went to a Christian conference and during the conference, sadly, a close friend of one of the conference leaders uh, was killed in a car accident. The, the friend who was killed wasn't a Christian. I happened to be with the chairperson when the news came in about the accident and I was struck by his reaction. He wept. Now I'm sure he did that for a range of reasons. The nervous energy of having to tell some people uh, some sad news. The sadness of one of the leaders having lost a close friend. But mainly it was because someone who did not have fellowship with God was now standing before God. And he wept. And I felt rebuked. And I reckon the Apostle John would have wept too. For his joy is for people to have fellowship with God. That's why he's writing the letter. That's why he's standing up saying, hey, look, I don't want you to be fooled by what other people are telling you. I know it sounds crazy. I know that. But God became a man. I know I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. And I want you to know that truth so that you too can have fellowship with God. And friends, I don't know, if you're here this morning and you believe what John is saying, don't you reckon there's someone in your life that you need to pass that news on to as well? So that they might have fellowship with God? So that your joy could be made complete? Because this is not a game. All roads do not lead to God. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't believe that, if this, is, if this whole morning is just rubbing you the wrong way, I want to beg you to think very hard about it. Because it's not a game. 
all the roads don't lead to God. Only Jesus does. And I know it cuts against absolutely everything the world says, but it's the truth. Don't take it from me. Take it from John. He was there. I think Paul and Anne are going to lead us in prayer.